Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Yeah. Baby laying in the manger On the first, first Noel Being treated like a stranger On the first, first Noel Ain't no crowds or disciples On the first, first Noel Flesh and bone just like you On the first, on the first Noel Okay, Hatfield, let's open up our Bibles then together once again to the book of Matthew. So the first book in your New Testament, second half of your Bible, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. And as you are opening up there, as we said last week, it seems that in this time, everyone encourages us in the festive season to count our blessings, isn't it? And this is the season that everyone seems to be blessed, hashtag blessed, right? So this is the most used hashtag in the festive season. Everyone seems to be blessed. If you go onto the Instagram and you type it in, you'll get 139 million results, of which the most of those are obviously just cars and bodies and houses and holidays. Everyone is blessed. And I think the overuse of this hashtag blessed uh, handle has actually led to some very ironic comedy. As we said last week, Devin Magwood is the comedian. He tweeted out, caught a piece of bacon falling out of my sandwich right before it hit the ground, hashtag blessed. So maybe you've got some deeper blessing than that at the moment you're contemplating. But the question we've been asking is, what does it mean to be truly blessed? What does blessing mean? Is it material? Is it spiritual? Is it financial? Is it relational? What does it mean to be blessed? And in this series that we started last week and into early January, we're calling it Blessed Beyond Measure. We want to look at that very issue because Jesus And probably the most famous sermon of all time, I think actually one of the most influential bits of oratory expression in the history of mankind called the Sermon on the Mount, he opens this famous saying of his with this thing in English that we call the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And the reason for it is in Latin, that word beatus means blessed. So we can actually call this opening of his sermon, the blessed ones. Jesus says he wants to spend time speaking about those that are truly blessed and why. And we said so crucial that if you look at how it starts, before he gets to his beatitudes, his his blessings, it says this, when he saw the crowds, this is verse one, he went up on the mountain. So Jesus has been preaching, has been healing. There's this buzz around this man from Galilee and all these crowds gather around him. But it says, as he goes up, the crowds gather around, but then his disciples, those who were following him, they came to him. And verse 2 says, and then he began to teach them. So we said last week, yes, the, the crowds are with an earshot. Yes, they are also part of what's being said. But Jesus' main focus was his disciples. He's not trying to say to us, as I think many people misinterpret their attitudes, this is a list of do's and don'ts that get you into a place of relationship and favor with God. If you can do these things well enough, consistently enough, if you can succeed at being this kind of person, then God will love you and bless you and restore you, redeem you. No, Jesus is saying these are the character traits of kingdom people who are in relationship with God through faith in Jesus. And then because of that relationship, these things just start growing in them so naturally. 
Over decades of life, these things are nurtured within my people. Even the structure of the Beatitudes, it says this to us. In typical Jewish writing style, the beginning and the end, the first and final Beatitude, like a a burger of blessing, we said, like bookends, you see only in the first and the last one, it says to these people, it says to them is the kingdom of God. Not it will be, it might be, to them, they have this. Jesus is not saying to us, this is what you can do for me. He's saying, this is what you have in me. This is what you have in me. If you're a Christ follower, so nurture it. So make this the center of who you are. Let this rearrange your thinking and your emotions. So Jesus, can I just say again that in December, at the end of like the longest 18 months of our lives, he is not preaching at you in December. This is what you need to do. He is speaking his blessing over you. He's speaking his blessing over you. So rest in it today. Step into it. Sit in it like a big poofkissing. <laughs> rest in it today, right? There's no English word for that. That's what we need to do. Jesus is saying in this season, it's not a season to count your blessings. It's a season to take note of the blessedness of being in Christ. What does it mean to be truly blessed? So let's pick it up once again. Matthew 5, last week we started here, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That was last week, and then this week, verse 4. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So what is Jesus saying here? Mourning means to experience this deep sense of grief and sadness and sorrow. So why does Jesus say that you are blessed if you experience that? Is he just saying that any person who's experiencing deep sadness and grief at the moment that they are blessed? Is that, his, is that you know, his point? Why is he saying this? And so as we have been doing every week um, in this holiday rhythm, we also want to take a moment of just a bit of discussion. So around our tables, I'm going to give you five minutes. There'll be a countdown. And this is our question. And, and threes and fours just around our tables I want you to discuss this for five minutes. Do you see a connection between the first beatitude from last week, poor in spirit, and this week? Is there some connection between those two and what could it be? So five minutes around your tables and we'll move further. Introduce yourself if you don't know some of the people. Let's do it. Great. So I hope that you've had some really productive discussion and not sharing memes with one another. Um, So blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What is Jesus saying? So Colin Smith, he's a theologian and a pastor. He says there are actually three kinds of mourning, experiencing that deep kind of sadness and grief. The first is sinful mourning, second is natural mourning, and the third is spiritual mourning. So what is sinful mourning? Sinful mourning is when I basically crave, I desire something that God has given to someone else, but not to me. The Bible also calls this coveting. Why? Because in a sense, I'm mourning the fact that I don't have the life that I think I should have. I'm mourning the fact that other people have the things that I feel I rightfully should have. You know, many years ago, I so struggled with this on the social media front that I completely deleted my Facebook account for three years. 
I was off of Facebook, deleted it, gone, because just for me, maybe you're more mature than I am, but I couldn't handle that. Just the comparison that I constantly experience on the inside, and I, and I constantly felt like, you know, other people have the things that I feel I so deeply desire, and I realized I was in this place of sinful mourning, coveting. So obviously, that's a very destructive thing. It kills you on the inside. Comparison leads to spiritual death, and I don't think that's what Jesus is speaking about you. But what about natural mourning? Natural mourning is when someone close to me that I love, when I lose that person, or when something calamitous happens in my life, I go into a place of mourning. Actually, one of our community group leaders yesterday, she lost her father, and they're going to be in a season as a family of natural mourning, because that is the natural response that we have in our hearts to, to people that we love when we lose them. And Jesus knew about this. Shortest verse in all of the New Testament, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus loses a close friend and Lazarus, and it simply says, he wept. Jesus knew in the, in the depth of his soul what it means to mourn someone. And I want to say natural mourning is needed and it's good. It's part of how we've been put together. In fact, I think God gives us his Holy Spirit. And one of the names for the Holy Spirit is the Comforter. I think God gives us His Spirit, His presence, but also His people that in those seasons of mourning that we are supported and we are comforted. But I also don't think that's what Jesus is saying, that those who are just going through really difficult times of loss, that they are just simply blessed. Why? Because in the Beatitudes, I think that Jesus is saying to us, these are the qualities of kingdom character that I want my people to have in abundance. I want you to have as much of this as possible and I doubt that Jesus is saying, I want my people to go after as much heartache as possible. Get as much brokenness and loss in your life as you can. I doubt that that is what he is trying to say to us. So I don't think that's the mourning that he's speaking about either. I think he's speaking about spiritual mourning. And what is spiritual mourning? Spiritual mourning is the flip side. It's the other side of the coin from what we spoke about last week. We said last week that blessed are the poor, not poor materially and not poor, like I have a poor spirit, like I have a low self-esteem or no ambition. That's not what he was speaking about. He said poor in spirit means I realize somewhere in my life, whether I have everything I've ever wanted materially or nothing, there comes a place for every person where I realize that I'm spiritually bankrupt before God. I can bring nothing to him to, to garner his blessing, to force him to love me or to bless me. I come with nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross. I claim I am bankrupt. But what's being said here is when that understanding, that conviction, when it goes from up here, I realize that and it comes down to here in the depth of my heart, of my soul, I experienced that spiritual morning. Now I'm no longer just realizing the fact that I need God. Now from the, the most guttural, honest, raw place of my soul, I cry out to God, I need you. I cry out. I don't, I don't just go, you know, I, I turn over a new leaf and, you know, I'm going to church and I'm going to patch myself up a bit and I'm going to try harder. No, there is this absolute emotional, spiritual desperation in me that God, I am a billionaire with everything I've ever wanted and yet I'm deeply empty. I need you. I desire you. I'm 
desperate for you. This is what spirit, and here's the beautiful thing. You might think, wow, that's, that's heavy for December, but here's the beautiful thing. What does Jesus say about people who reach that place, that deep, guttural, honest, raw place? It says, they will be comforted. They will be comforted. Romans 10, 13, so famously says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But I think we missed that middle part. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. No, it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. God, I need you. I don't need religion. I don't need better habits. I don't need morality. I don't need like a bit of life coaching. I am desperately in need of you. And it says those will be comforted. God is saying that, you know, that, that natural mourning, that's needed and it's normal. Sinful mourning, that's, it's deadly and it's distracting. But he says that spiritual mourning is blessed. <laughs> it's blessed. Why? Because it leads you to a place. And what is that place? It's a place where I seek God. The one thing that I cannot find in anything in this life. I suddenly realized, like C.S. Lewis says, if there is, you know, a need in my heart for chocolate, it's something, because there is probably chocolate in this world. If, if a duck is seeking after water, it's probably because there is something like that. If, if sexual desire is in their eyes, there's probably because there's something like sex out there. And he says this then, he says, so if there is something in your soul that you realize nothing in this world fully satisfies, Maybe it's because you've been made for something more than just this world. Those who come to that place, not just up here, not just as an intellectual exercise, but as a deep gut level, God, I need you. He says, you will be comforted because you are seeking after, running after. You lay yourself down broken at the feet of the Savior. And that changes who Jesus is. Yes, he's a nice bedtime story. He's some religious figure. He's a nice philosophical, you know, spouter of, of tweets or whatever it is. No, because if, for instance, you know, if, if my life is just falling apart, then yes, Jesus suddenly becomes powerful. He can do something about that, I think. Or if, you know, the world around me suddenly makes no more sense, then Jesus becomes useful. Or if I struggle with these thoughts of being alone in the universe, then maybe Jesus becomes meaningful to me. But he is saying that in that moment when I realize my deep need for God because of my lostness and my brokenness, he is no longer simply powerful or useful or meaningful. He becomes beautiful. He's beautiful. That place of not just, yeah, Jesus up here, but in here, in my gut, in my, I need you. I call out to you. He is beautiful. I have, to, I have to reach a place of such deep desperation. And you have to see yourself there. Otherwise, otherwise, Jesus will never make sense. Otherwise, you'll be doing him favors in religion. Imagine yourself, you know, there's a, there's a documentary on Netflix at the moment called 14 Peaks. Wow, like amazing. Telling the story of a guy who wants to, in seven months, climb the 14 highest mountains in the world, all over 8,000 meters high. It's just an crazy, crazy story. But he says that in, in those heights, if you lose your oxygen supply, eventually you'll develop something called haze, high altitude cerebral edema. And he says this means that the lack of oxygen eventually leads you to a place where you cannot function normally. You can't think straight. You can't move. You are dead in the water. 
Hundreds of people die like that on these mountains. And so he says, if you end up like that and someone doesn't find you, you are dead. Now think about this. In that place of desperation on the mountain, that is my life. Existential crisis. I'm dead. I'm dumb. I'm blind. I'm lost. I'm broken. I lie there. (laughs) Again, maybe with everything you've ever wanted and you lie there or with nothing and you lie there. If someone happens to come upon you and that person can help you, but they don't want to, they're heartless, you lost. If that person wants to help you, but they can't, they're powerless, I just can't carry you, you are lost, you're dead. But here is what Jesus is saying. I don't just come upon you on your mountain. I come to find you. And not only am I powerful to pick you up, I'm all loving. I come to not just put you in a corner of like, okay, I'll tolerate you. I come to pick you up, rescue you in your desperation, love you, restore you, redeem you. That's the beauty of what Jesus is saying in that most guttural moment of my life of like, God, I'm desperate for you. What are you met with? Jesus said. As he's saying, you met with a God who is judgmental and hateful and, and you know, who's, it's all rules and you better sort yourself out and come into the house. No, he says, you are met with a God of love, a God of comfort, a God of grace, a God who brings wholeness and restoration and redemption and healing, who calls you into a, in a sense of who you are and your identity and your purpose who comes to establish you in your calling, this is the God who we are met with. Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And what? I will give you rest. That is the God. That's why I love Catherine Doherty in her book, The Gospel Without Compromise. She says, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it can be summed up by saying that it is the tremendous Tender, compassionate, gentle, extraordinary, explosive, revolutionary revelation of what? Of a hateful God? No, of Christ's love. The one who comes to find you, pick you up and carry you to the very end. Those who realize that from the most deep and dark part of their soul cry out for help. says those will be comforted. Guys, if following Jesus becomes this dry, emotionless drag, (laughs) it's because I'm not daily and weekly being confronted once again with the beauty of this, that God has done this and infinitely more in my life. I mean, think about Jesus When he starts his ministry in Luke, he goes and he recalls one of the old prophet's words in Isaiah. And he says, this is what I have come to do. Isaiah 6 verse 1. So famously, the spirit of the Lord God is on me. Jesus would later say, because the Lord has anointed me to what? Bring good news to the poor. To bring healing to the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to prisoners, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of God's vengeance, to comfort all those who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, a festive oil instead of mourning, splendid clothes instead of despair. Friends, is this what my faith is like? 
beauty, dancing, joy, exuberance. Is this what my faith is like or is it just dry religious drudgery? Because Jesus is saying, this is what I want to give you. And the answer is, man, are the rhythms of my life here in December, well, like I said, spiritually, we need to lie into our pufkasings. That's what we need to do at the moment. And I lie into it by saying, are the rhythms of my faith built around, now I'm going to really figure it out. Now I'm going to impress God. Now I'm going to do better. Now I'm going... Or is it built around God through your word and your spirit and your people, through the music that I listen to, the conversations I have, God, through the moments I create to be in your presence throughout the day, uh, the way that I engage with the church, the way I think about literally the running of my day, am I being confronted with the beauty of the God who brings comfort to the weary? He says, man, when you call out at your most desperate, Not the desperation of my business is failing and God, if you can just make this work, you know, I'll do this or God, just this exam and, you know, we'll figure it. No, but that desperation of I have nothing but you. He says, am I being reminded of the God who in that moment showers me with his love, showers me with his grace, saturates me with his goodness? Is that the God? You know, John Tyson, he's one of my favorite preachers from New York. And he says, you know, that city is, it's a cynical city. 20 million people that are burnt out on performance, proving themselves, shattered dreams. He says, that city is so cynical. And yet he says, I walk around after being there for decades of ministry and disappointment, all of that in life. He says, I walk around in that city with childlike joy, childlike joy. Why? Because my life's rhythm is built around encountering day after day, week after week. Not dry religion, but that place of on my knees crying before God, the tears just like filling my eyes thinking about this God, this God for me, Jesus, resurrected for me, that God. Friends, in a cynical country, we can be people of childlike joy. Rest in it. Jesus says, this is what you have in me. So maybe I can remind you in closing this morning, maybe just with a story of the God who comes to do that for you. So Brendan Manning, in his book, The Furious Longing of God, he tells this story from his own life. Back in the late 1960s, I was teaching at a university in Ohio, and there was a student on campus who by Society standards would have been called ugly. He was short, extremely obese. He had terrible cases of acne, a bad lisp, and his hair was growing in four directions at one time. He wore a t-shirt that hadn't been washed since the Spanish-American War, jeans with butterflies on the back, and of course, no shoes. In all my days, I've never met anybody with such low self-esteem. He told me that when he looked in the mirror each morning, he spit at it. No campus goal would date him, and no fraternity wanted him as a pledge. Now, he goes on to tell of this student. His name is Larry, and he says this guy had such a strained relationship with his father. His dad, this hard-nosed Irishman, he had never shown him affection and acceptance. They always had this very antagonistic and difficult relationship. So Larry goes home during the Christmas break from his studies, and he's with his parents, difficult couple of weeks between him and his dad. And then he needs to go back to the university, and his dad says he'll, he'll ride the bus with him. 
And so he says this, the next morning, the father and son ride the bus in silence. They got off the bus, and as Larry had to catch a second one to get to the airport, directly across the street are six men standing under an awning, all men who work in the same textile factory as Larry's father. They begin making loud and degrading remarks, like, oink, look at that fat pig. I tell you, if that pig was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed. And others said, I wouldn't. If that slob was my kid, he'd be out the door. Hey, pig, give us your best oink. Imagine that moment. Imagine for the father as well. In that moment, for the first time in his life, his father reached out, embraced him, kissed him on the lips and said, Larry, if your mother and I lived to be 200 years old, they wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift that he gave us in you. I'm so proud that you are my son. Now he tells that Larry was an atheist at this point of his life. And when he got back to university, he walked straight to Branding, his office, and he starts asking him about God, about faith, eventually about Jesus. And after weeks of just conversation back and forth, Larry becomes a Christian. And his life is radically impacted. And Brendan Manning asked the question, what was the change that took place? Was it these conversations that I had with him? And he says this, he says, no. It was because of a day long ago during a Christmas vacation, standing at a bus stop, when his hard-nosed Irish father healed him. Yes, his father healed him. His father had the guts to choose the high road of blessing in the face of cursing and taunts. His father looked deeply into his son's eyes, saw the good in Larry that Larry could not see for himself, affirmed him with a furious love, and changed the whole direction of his son's life. Friends, this is the picture of the God who says, blessed are those who come to the lowest point of their lives and who cry out. Why? Because they will be comforted. This is the God who looks into your eyes in that moment, dead on the mountain, who kisses you on the mouth and says, you are my son. And I want to say this, friends, the depth, almost like a foundation, the depth of a foundation determines the height of a building. The depth to which this captures my heart will determine the height of my soul's joy and pleasure and hope. The depth to which this God captures my heart will determine the height of my soul's joy and pleasure and hope. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, I want to ask just in the tenderness of this moment, may you just come and shower us just with the picture of the Father who does not condemn but comes to save, to restore, to redeem, to renew. God, for every person who's a Christian here this morning, may they be brought back to the place of deep, deep mourning for what has been, and in that discover the deep
depth of joy of what is. May you invite every heart who's at a distance. Spirit will just bring them, God, to Jesus and to his cross. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, for what you've done. Thank you that we can experience a comfort that goes beyond any blessing of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. I want to end just by giving us, like we said last week, in this season, I don't want to give you a bunch of do's. I want to give you just the practice. We spoke about contemplative prayer last week, breathing prayer. It's one of these things that have been, it's been exercised and practiced by the church for 2,000 years, starting with the Desert Fathers and Mothers of the Early Church. And it just simply says, because God is even closer than my closest breath, my next breath, sometimes when I'm just overwhelmed at work, when I'm overwhelmed at home, when I'm in the traffic and I'm overwhelmed, maybe something I can do is just as I take a piece of scripture and I break it apart, or I take a promise of God and I break it into two, as I breathe in, I just, in my mind, just speak that first promise. And as I breathe out, I just speak the second part of it. So I want to give you one for this week as well. Maybe we'll just do one or two of those. And you can put your own words in there, but maybe this helps you. As we breathe in, we just say, Father, I need your love. And as I breathe out, I just say, your love heals all of me. As I breathe in, Father, I need your love, just in my mind. And as I breathe out, I just say, your love heals all of me. Just close your eyes for a second. Let's just do that together, just two or three times. As we breathe in, Father, I need your love. As we breathe out, your love heals all of me. Breathe in. Father, I need your love. Breathe out. Your love heals all of me. Last time, just breathe in. Father, I need your love. As we breathe out, your love heals all of me. Amen and amen.